0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter one, verses one through chapter two, verses 10. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman brought the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus. It feels good to say that. I've been wanting to say that for a long time. Now it's going to take me a while to get back in steam okay get back in the rhythm of things this is an old testament historical narrative book it's a different type of book that we've been preaching for the last year two years and so it's gonna take me a while to get caught back up and and by a while i mean just cover up your watch today okay please do that for me um i'm joking but i'm not joking um listen can i just be honest with you we don't think there's anything more important then studying God's word, then being in God's word, than hearing from God. And this is where we do that. Now, I know all of you have your own private times of study, several hours long, every day, where you're seeking the Lord and the Spirit's giving you insight. I know that's true. And so today's just an extra and an add-on for that. But we think it's important and we think it's vital. And it's vital enough that we don't, well, actually, most of us, the kids' workers sometimes complain. But very very rarely do we complain. We like to hear the word of God um, preached, right? We like expository verse by verse. And most of us probably have never went through the book of Exodus. And we've probably seen the Prince of Egypt, or we've probably seen Charlton Heston. And we've seen these movies, most of them poorly done, but some of them okay. And we have this idea that we think maybe we know what Exodus is about, but probably, I, I would challenge you that you probably don't. You probably know the big picture, the big things that happen, but you don't really see the intricacies. You don't see the hand of God, how he's been at work. You don't see how everything kind of points to Jesus. And we're going to try to do our best in that over the next year, let's just say. 50 chapters or, or, you know, it's going to take us a long time to get through this, right? It's going to take us a long time. So let's just jump in this morning, all right? I need some help. Here we go. The book of Exodus. Well, the word Exodus literally means exit, or departure, and it first appears in this book that we're going to read, and actually in chapter 19, it says, in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, well, when the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the verb there for leaving Egypt was exodus, and eventually that word, that that Greek word came to be used as a title for the whole book. Okay, so this book doesn't have the title Exodus. We gave it the title of Exodus out of chapter 19 there. And the Exodus then is a story of departure. It's about leaving. It's it's an epic journey from slavery to salvation. All right, we're going to hear this a lot. Now, it is a historical event, but it's also much more than that. This is the story of Israel, but it's also our story as well as believers and as Christians, as men and women. See, all of us are somewhere in our spiritual journey, our exodus, our leaving, let me just say this, our leaving slavery and entering into a new relationship with God of freedom. So exodus helps us understand where we are, where we've come from, where we're going. But Exodus is far more than just a map detailing how to get to God. It also gives us a unique kind of inside look into the mind and heart of God. A view we never have, when we're honestly, when we're walking through our life here on this earth. Uh, when we're walking through what the psalmist called the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have this view this window into what God is doing and what his heart is. But Exodus gives us that view. And so today our story begins in a very dark place. And I guess it's fitting since today is the 15th anniversary of the terrorist attacks that killed 3000 Americans on nine 11. The way we felt that day, if you remember the fear The doubt, the anger, many of us wondering where God was and why would he allow something like this to happen? If we can kind of tap into some of those feelings today, it can help us get a sense of the emotional context of the people here in chapter 1. See, today we get a peek behind the curtain. Because the story of Israel is our story as well and their god is our god we get a unique perspective on the providence of god providence of god means the way god works with his creation see god well let me just say that the way god works in his creation now i don't presume to think that what we're going to learn today is actually going to make going through difficulties and going through really hard times and seeing tragedies happen i don't think it's going to make it any easier but I think it's going to help us maybe understand some things and maybe encourage us along the way. But I'm excited to jump in it, even though it's surprising to me how sometimes we, we read these texts to our children at night, okay? Because what we're going to read today is just like very scary to me, right? Oh, you know, slavery, you know, killing all the children, you know, oh, sleep tight, honey, we'll finish tomorrow. Right? (gasps) But Moses, right? This is a very dark text this morning. It's ugly. It's full of blood. And I'm going to say this. The only redeeming quality or maybe the primary redeeming quality is the small dim light that blinks at the end. So let's jump into our text. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Now most of us would be like, oh, skip this section. Right names, but the funny thing is, is actually in the Hebrew, the Hebrew text begins with the word and. Now, we don't want to start a book that way, but what, why would the why would the writer, which is Moses, why would he write this book and start Exodus with the book of and or the word and? Well, he, he's doing it to remind us that Exodus is not intended to be a standalone book. In fact, it's a sequel. Okay. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Pentateuch. Now, if you want to impress your friends, use that word this week, Pentateuch. All right. Pentateuch is the five books of the law or five books of Moses. Okay. It's five books in it. It is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They all make up one big story. All right. And so Exodus is part two of that book, but it's also in a way, the most important book in the entire Old Testament. In fact, you cannot understand the gospel. You cannot understand the Old Testament. You cannot understand Jesus or the cross or the tomb or the resurrection or the ascension or redemption or the Lord's Supper or baptism or heaven without understanding this book. All of them find their seeds in the book of Exodus. Think of it like this, as the cross and the tomb and the resurrection is to the Old Testament, so is the book of Exodus, to the New Testament, so is the book of Exodus to the Old Testament. So the Exodus is not to be understood or read or really known, you can't even understand it as a standalone book. Think of it like this, you don't pick up, you know, Harry Potter three and start reading, right? You wouldn't understand it apart from Harry Potter one and Harry Potter two or the Lord of the Rings, or any of these trilogies. You don't, if we just jump into the book of Exodus, we don't understand what's going on. And many of us do that, right? Many of us do that. We have to know the beginning of the story. And the beginning of the story literally is Genesis. Genesis means beginnings. And we spent a whole year preaching verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And that's on our podcast, on our website. You can find that on iTunes, wherever you want. You can go back and listen to those and get caught up. Um, so what the staff asked me to do today was summarize 52 sermons in five minutes for you. So let, they didn't really ask me to do that. I just have to do that. So let me do that. Cause I got to get us caught up because that's what Moses is trying to do in these first few verses. He's reminding us of where we left off in Genesis. Okay. This is what happens in Genesis. First off, God is the only one who's good, right, and perfect. He's the uncreated creator. He exists and nothing else exists. And then out of his goodness and his love and his benevolence, he creates. And the apex of his creation is mankind, man and woman, male and female. He creates them and he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy the good of the garden, everything on the earth. I want you to make cities. I want you to create computers. I want you to formulate the iPhone 7. I want you to do these things for the glory of me. But what do they do, right? He says, one thing I don't want you to do, don't eat from this tree. He doesn't really tell them why. He just says, don't eat from this tree. You can eat from everything else. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, create it, that's the creational mandate. And of course, they rebel from him. They say, we don't want to do what you've told us to do. And mankind in this moment, we call it the fall. Mankind is kind of thrown upside down and they're cursed by God for their disobedience and the creation is cursed and everything kind of gets fractured and bent and all kind of problems ensue. Mankind in this moment, here's the here's the kicker. Mankind in this moment believes freedom is found away from God doing what I want to do. And the problem with this is that man's mind and his soul has fallen into sin. So his mind has been bent, his spirit has been bent. I like to say his wanter, what he wants, is broken now after the fall. And so mankind doesn't want what is good for them, what will make them happy, what will bring them everlasting joy, God himself. They want their own idea of freedom in doing what they want to do. This means that he wants to sin. I want to do wicked things. I want to lie. I want to cheat. I want to take. I want to do these things. And so he has the freedom. we, We like to say man has free will. Man had free will in the garden. He was free to obey God. Mankind upon the fall has a bondage of the will. Their will is bent and broken and they're not free to obey God any longer. They are free to sin and that's what they do and they're really good at it. You read the book of Genesis and you kind of get blown away by what happens. He wants to be his own God. He wants to be, he he wants to tell himself what to do. He doesn't have anybody above him. See, fallen humans have the, this idea of freedom, that listen, is actually just slavery. A slavery to sin that leads to greater and greater pain. Right away in Genesis, we see murder, we see hate, we see jealousy, we see greed, we see rape, and we see these things over and over and over as the darkness of the human heart is exposed. They run further and further from God God is so angry at sin that he wipes them off the planet except for one family. He's like, I'm gonna start over with Noah and his family. Woohoo! Noah and the ark. We love it. Praise God. He just annihilated the human race except for one family. He wiped them off the earth because he hates sin that much. And then what happens? Noah gets off the ark and gets plastered. Gets hammered drunk. Oh, you don't, that part's not in the kids' books. Well, it's in the Bible. Gets hammered drunk I'm not even going to talk about what happens with his daughter. All kind of freaky, freaky stuff. Go back and listen to that sermon. Right? And sin just start, the cycle of sin just starts all over again. There's a slavery to it. We see it over and over and over in the Old Testament. Now, I, I don't mean to, yes, I do, actually. For those of you who are like, you had all these biblical heroes in your mind from Sunday school. Listen, the Bible mars them. When you read the book of Exodus, you're not like, whoo, I love Noah. I'm going to be like Noah. I'm going to name my child after Noah hoping. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. You see every single hero in the old Testament marred by sin, embarrassed by sin brought down, cut low. Why? It shows they're all enslaved to sin. No matter how great their faith is, they're fools. And then we see what what do we see? We see this God, this, this God over all the universe, this God who, Created man and they rebelled from him instead of killing them and wiping them off the planet. He says, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to do something different to fix this problem. God calls a man named Abram. And Abram was a moon worshiping pagan. in The land of Ur, the Chaldeans. So I don't want you to get this picture of Abraham. He's toiling over the scriptures that he hasn't written yet. He's toiling over them, or that he hasn't been a part of. He's toiling over the scriptures. He's crying out to God, and God sees his earnestness and says, I want that guy. He's for me. He's a good one. Let's get him. No, he's worshiping the moon god. And God says, Abram, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. I'm going to multiply your offspring so much, they're gonna be a great nation. Basically, the redeemer is gonna come from you, the one who's gonna fix it and make it all right. He's gonna come from your lineage. I'm gonna do this thing in you. And of course, there's a huge problem with that. Abram is an old dude and he has an old wife and they have no children. And so then in Genesis 15, actually, I'm gonna go there and I'd encourage you, let's just go there. We're We're one verse into Exodus, by the way. Genesis 15, just do the math. Uh, Genesis 15, uh, I'm gonna go there, get there real quick. I'm gonna say, I'm just gonna read some of this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, that's just Eliezer. Sorry, Eliezer. Like, all I got is this second cousin over here. That's basically what he's saying. This guy that lives down in the holler, Eliezer, that's all I got. And God's going to say something. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Ooh, I love that. That's the gospel in the Old Testament, but I can't preach that right now. And he said, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to possess. He says, but how, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I should possess it? And this is what God does. God says, bring me these animals. And, he, and, and Abraham brings Abram brings him these animals and he cuts them in half. Now this is getting pretty wicked and I got a whole sermon on it you can listen to in Genesis. He cuts these animals in half and he lays them down like in a, in a line, one half on the one half and he, he knocks Abram out, okay? He literally puts him to sleep. The same, Hebrew, the same Hebrew word when Adam was put to sleep and he took the rib out of Adam's side, that's the same thing that happens to Abram. Abram is knocked unconscious. He literally has a night terror with God in it. See, most of us think if I have a dream of God, it's gonna be pleasant and clouds and angelic harps playing. No, no, no. When Abram has a vision of God, it's a night terror. He's freaked out. Look at look at. let me, let me see Uh, As the sun was going down, verse 12, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, oh, I love these words. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of the animal. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenanites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, and the Jebusites. What's going on? In this moment, the God of the universe comes down, is visibly seen by fire, walking through these cut pieces, making, literally cutting, cutting a covenant with Abram. What's a covenant? What's he saying? Basically, when we go and we sign a contract at the bank and we say, I want to buy this house, if I don't make the payments, you can take the house and maybe take my car or whatever else I can take, right? That's collateral. When God is cutting a covenant with Abram, he's walking through these pieces. Abram doesn't walk through them. Abram doesn't make the covenant. God cuts the covenant and God walks through them and says, if I break the covenant, if I fail to do what I've promised to do, let me be like these animals cut asunder. God says, I'm willing to lay my life down. I will accomplish this covenant. And inside this covenant, I mean, there's so many good things that you almost rush by like, Abraham is childless. he's like 100, his wife's like 90, all these things aren't going to happen, what? He's going to have all these offspring, but you miss this promise in there. Your offspring is, are going to be sojourners on a land that's not their own. They're going to be in slavery for 400 years. It's almost like Abram just, but I'm going to have a baby! Like, just misses all of that and just, but I'm going to be a dad! Right? And so here we are, in the book of Exodus, and these things have happened. They are in a land that's not their own. Abraham's seed has multiplied. He's had the children. They've multiplied into great nation, into a great nation. Let and, and me just say this. I mean, oh Lord, there's so much I want to talk about here. This is 600 years right here. This prophecy is 600 years before where we're at in Exodus. Okay, so there's 600 years between, uh, roughly, between Genesis 15 and Exodus 1. And then out of this, what do we have? Then you keep going through Genesis and you have Ishmael and Isaac. And God chooses kind of the lesser son. This is kind of the second son, son of the promise to be a blessing. And then after that, we have Jacob and Esau. And again, God chooses, he, he violates everything that's known in the culture by choosing, you know, the firstborn son. No, he chooses the second born son. He chooses the deceiver, Jacob. And then what happens with Jacob? Jacob becomes, he wrestles with God and his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. If you remember this. And Jacob or Israel has 12 sons. And of course he has a favorite. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And Joseph has these, Joseph is chosen by God, and Joseph has these dreams. And now listen, if you have 12 or 11 older brothers, it's not a wise idea to go to them and go, hey guys, I had this dream. You were all bowing down to me and worshiping me. What do you think it means? They all interpreted it correctly. It means we're going to throw you into a well and sell sell you into slavery. And that's exactly what they did. Out of jealousy, out of hatred in their heart, they sell him, they throw him into a pit, they go back and tell dad he's dead. They bring his coat, it's got animal blood on it, he's died, dad. And what's so interesting, when you follow this through Genesis, is Joseph then gets thrown in prison, and then Joseph is given, he's given interpretation of dreams by God, and he interprets some important dreams, and then he gets elevated into Potiphar's house, who's over Egypt, and then all of a sudden he gets, he, Potiphar's wife accuses him um, of sexual impropriety. That wasn't true. He gets thrown into the prison. He spends many more years in prison. Then he gets exalted again through the interpretation of dreams, and now he's the second in command over all Egypt, and guess what happens back home? A famine hits the land back home. And now Jacob has to send the brothers into Egypt to ask for help. They need rations. They need food. They can't survive any longer. And it just so happens that the one who's in charge of everything is their little brother and they don't know it. And it's a fascinating, phenomenal story to work through. But ultimately you have Joseph giving them grace and Joseph forgiving them. And what happens is all 70 of Jacob's family, come into Egypt, all right? And so here we go, 70 people enter into Egypt, and that's where we're picking up the story right now. 70 people of one family, Abraham's family, like we got 70, great nation, not quite yet. They're, in, they're into this pagan nation, this Egypt. And so Moses wants us to see some things here that we first learned in Genesis, okay? The first thing is this, God is sovereign. Now, what does that mean? It means that God has absolute rule and authority and control over his creation. It also presupposes some things. If God is sovereign, it means he's also omniscient. He knows everything. It means he's also omnipotent. He has ultimate power and he cannot be stopped from doing what he wants to do. We're gonna learn this over and over through the book of Exodus. Listen to some other scriptures on this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. First Chronicles 29:11. Listen to Psalm 115:3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, why should you care that God is sovereign? Well, understanding the sovereignty of God is one of the most important and practical of all Christian truths. See, if God is not sovereign, that means his plans can be stopped. That means his love for you could be interrupted or sabotaged. It might be, he might not be able to protect you or speak to you or even save you. God might have the desire. He might be benevolent up in heaven, but he looks down and he says, oh, but the devil, I just can't do anything because the devil is so powerful. I can't do anything because look at the problem they're in, or I can't do anything because look at their unbelief, or I can't do it. If God is not sovereign, he might not be able to save someone. A.W. Pink says this, a God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and so far from being a fit object of worship, merits naught but contempt. To be God and to be opposed and resisted successfully, you would not be God. But our God is Sovereign. And Moses begins this great book by reminding us of one of the quintessential truths we learned about God in Genesis. He is sovereign and his will accomplishes everything exactly like he planned to do it. What he promised in Genesis 15, 600 years, he is patient. 600 years later, he is accomplishing it in Exodus 1. But there's something else we need to remember from Genesis. The book of Genesis ended like this. Joseph's brothers come to him. His, their father has died. They think Joseph is going to take, retaliate now. So Joseph's brothers come to him and they're like, please be merciful to us. Don't kill us for, you know, that little thing we did back there when you were a boy. I, why you always got to bring it up? All we did was sell you into slavery. All right? And what does Joseph say? Joseph says this, am I God? Listen, this is what it says. Ends the book of Genesis. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph says, all of the evil that you have done against me, selling me into slavery, telling my father that I was dead, me going to prison, all of that, God flipped for my good. If, this is phenomenal. If you wouldn't have sold me, I wouldn't have been in Egypt at the exact time to save you from this famine. So Moses wants us to remember that Israel's God is unlike all the other gods of the world. He is in total control at all times. He is sovereign and he possesses the wisdom and power necessary to bring good out of evil. Now, back to Exodus, verse two. <laughs> How did I do that? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These are the 12 tribes. These are the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 tribes named after them. Okay. Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, right? Going, Joseph was already in Egypt. So there's 71 of them in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful. Now, this is, they, if you follow Genesis, there's a whole lot of be fruitful and multiply. We preach through Genesis, and then we've had 40 babies since, okay? <laughs> and I'm serious. Like, God wants us to be fruitful and multiply, right? Children are a blessing from the Lord. We hear this over and over and over. Told to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and Told to Noah, after, uh, after they get out of the boat, be fruitful, told many times, be fruitful and multiply. They are being fruitful and multiply they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. All right. Now this is interesting. Moses picks up the story right where he left off in Genesis and lets us know that God has been faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham. They've become a great nation. This is fascinating. While in Egypt, you go in 70 people. Now it's hard to keep a cultural identity, a family identity, with 70 people in a whole nation. And they're multiplying and multiplying, and we have several different generations here. We've got Joseph and all of his brothers dying off, and so we've got a long time, hundreds of years going on. But what's distinct and what's fascinating to me is these 70 people can stay culturally distinct and they can multiply and become a nation within a nation. God, God is saying, that doesn't happen naturally. See, when people come to America, a lot of the time, they just assimilate into our culture and they kind of lose their national identities, leave their national identities behind. That happens a lot, right? But that's not what's happening here. They're keeping a distinct cultural identity. They have multiplied and been fruitful and God has kept them safe in this pagan culture for 400 years. But here is where the story takes a very dark turn. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Joseph dies. Joseph's Pharaoh dies. The new Pharaoh didn't have a relationship with Joseph and doesn't care about Israel. This new Pharaoh just wants to make Egypt great again. So he takes inventory of his country and he sees a thriving immigrant population and he gets scared and alarmed. They're going to take our jobs. They're going to rise up and overpower us. Israel is too many. They are too mighty. We need to do something about the Israel problem. It's amazing to me how relevant this 3,000 year old book is. Blaming a country's problems on ethnic minorities has always been a convenient way. Racism is a part of our sinful human nature nature since the fall. It's convenient for leaders to point at the minority and say, it's them, they're to blame. Pharaoh did it, Hitler did it, we still do it today. Let us not forget that America has been such a nation. I think it still is such a nation. Let us not forget that the flag that means freedom to you was flying over our country while black men and women were considered three-fifths of a human being. Fourth of July, that we celebrate every year, Declaration of Independence sign. yes. In that document, black men and black men are worth three-fifths of a human, three-fifths of a white man. See, the African-American slaves would sing spirituals taken from this book of Exodus. Go down, Moses was one of them. Free at last was another one. While white slave owners read the same Bibles. How could this be? I often wrestle with my son. I love it. He loves it. Well, wrestling with your son, there's, there's a balance. You have to inflict enough pain that it's fun for him, right? Dangerous. But then if you flick, inflict too much pain, it all ends in tears, right? And then he gets mad at you. Now, what I've learned is when Javin says, ow, or he begins to cry because I hurt him. I don't berate him. Suck it up, boy you're going to be a man someday. What's wrong with you? Why are you crying? I don't say, come on, that couldn't have hurt. I barely touched you. See, I'm the dominant one. I'm the bigger one. I possess more strength. And so when I hurt him, I don't even know it. Unless I heard, listen to him. I'm not even aware of it. My weight, my weight, cause, you know, went down on his leg and hurt. I don't even, that was just a bump to me. It's similar if you're a part of a dominant culture and by dominant, I mean just there's more of you than the other aspects of the culture. Listen, just because we don't see it, just because we don't feel it, just because we know that we aren't racist or we aren't aware of any systemic issues that are hindering minority communities doesn't mean that they don't exist. When we hear a minority cry out and say they're being hurt, we as the dominant culture, as especially a Christian culture, need to listen. We will see soon that God is listening. It's fascinating to me. Now, I'm not gonna give full into the cultural stuff that we, they, we follow today that's going in. But I'm gonna say some, say some things that might offend you. Maybe I already have. Listen, when, when, when the, when the African American community is rioting in the streets and they're saying we're being unjustly killed, I heard many majority of my white friends, okay, I'm just gonna say this, say, why can't they just do something peacefully? Why do they have to do all this stuff and blow everything out of proportion and do all this obnoxious things? And then when months later, One African-American refuses to stand for the flag. He does something peacefully. The thing I think that many were asking him to do, "Why, why are you doing this? How dare you do this? Let me see dominant culture. Why don't you tell a minority exactly how they're supposed to express their pain? Write it down for them so they can follow the script to your liking. We need to listen. We don't know. Do you know the, the, you know the song that we sing, the national anthem? Do you know the, the, the verses that have been taken out? Do you know, Google it. Look at the slave language in that song. Look at it. Do we want to forget it? Shut up. Be quiet. We have a book of the Bible that's about delivering a minority out of slavery. This doesn't exist, Justin. Listen to this. Here's just something. Sam and I have been doing demographic research for Moline and the Quad Cities and stuff. 13% of the Quad Cities is African American. Okay? 2% of the homeowners in the Quad Cities are African American. That's a discrepancy. Could it be that there's an injustice there? You're not aware of it? because going to the bank and getting a job and filing, I don't do this. It's just easy for you. We're not aware of it. Doesn't mean it's not exist. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The majority culture is often blind to the minority culture's experience. Especially when it will cost them money power, prestige, because now I don't want to see it. It's going to cost me something. I don't want to see it. And so the king of Egypt says, we have a minority problem. I know what we'll do. We'll make them into slaves. Look at verses 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them. Now, this is going to get really repetitive and it's meant to kind of beat into our our brain that there is some violence taking place. There is some oppression taking place. There is an ugly attack on a group of people is taking place. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, praise God, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. You cannot stop God from accomplishing his will, Pharaoh. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Here's the key verses. So they ruthlessly, that literally means violently, so they violently made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service or hard work, it's the same work. listen, Everyone, nobody tra- transliterates this. Nobody takes this exactly how it is in the Hebrew because it's so clunky because it's the same word said over and over and over. So we mix work and service because literally what it's saying is they, they made them work, 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 work violently. They made them work, work, work. That's what it's saying here. Their lives bitter with hard work in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly, violently made them work as slaves. 400 years. Oppression, violence. Using them like workhorses and animals to build their empire. And so... This is where we begin to see this great theme that runs through the book of Exodus. Exodus is, here's the story of Exodus right here in one sentence Exodus begins in slavery and ends in freedom. But the freedom is different. It's not the freedom that we think, it's the freedom to do what we want. It's a freedom to worship God and to know God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the progression that we're going to see through the book of Exodus played out over and over from slavery to freedom. We see them afflicted, we see them working, and then the oppression intensifies. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other Pua. Okay, that, that verse right there is key. How much time do I got? Okay. Listen to this. Historians have have a hard time dating the Exodus because moses is a brilliant storyteller and he wants us to get some certain things he wants to get some points across through the way he uses like literary devices the way he writes the story the reason we can't date the exodus is because moses never names the pharaoh the most powerful person on the planet at this time and moses just goes the president he doesn't say president who doesn't say pharaoh who but look who he names Shipra and Pua, they're immortalized in this Bible. Two Hebrew midwives, and if you know anything about midwives, midwives were usually midwives because they could not have babies, okay? They couldn't have their own children, and so they delivered delivered babies, that's what they did. So these are like, really on the, you know, if, if you couldn't have a baby, you were seen as cursed by God in this culture because the blessing of God was be fruitful and multiply. So if you couldn't be fruitful and multiply, you were kind of seen as second class citizen. So it's so interesting to me that Moses, when he's writing this, the most powerful man in the planet, he doesn't even name. And the most nameless person who all of society looks at and says, you must be cursed. He names them. Who are these women? Shipra and poor. Now listen, if you're looking for baby names, nobody's doing that. Shipra and Puah. This is what Pharaoh says to these women. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, kill him. Mm. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Well, why why let the girls live? Because this is how war's been done for, for millennia. You kill the men and you bring the women in and you, bring, you marry the women off. This is what ISIS is doing right now. You kill the men who, are, who resist, you take the boys and you train them up to be soldiers, and all the women you take in to be sex slaves, or possibly wives. And you just obli- that's how you obliterate a culture. That's how you get rid of a culture. But the w- midwives feared God. More than the king, guys, more than the king, more than Pharaoh, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. I love this. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They give birth fast. That's basically what they're saying. See, the Egyptian women, they had, you know, they were the most the top of the food chain when it comes to society, right? And so they're on that epidural and it's taking them six days to have babies, right? They're like, I don't know, I need an espresso, right? (laughs) But the Hebrew women, they were like, let's do this thing. And they're pushing them out. Now, were they lying? Yes, they were lying. Was it still good? Absolutely, it was good. They're saving the lives of some some people. Recently, we had uh, 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 a A Christian go in to film aspects of Planned Parenthood where they're literally killing hundreds of thousands of babies and he lied to get his way in. Is that okay for him to lie? Absolutely, he's exposing an injustice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. So God dealt well. Oh, Justin, you just said it's okay to lie. So God dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And look at this. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. He said, oh, you can't have babies, but you save these babies. I have the power to open the womb. God's the one who puts the stamp of approval on it. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, look at this. It's now lawful for any Egyptian to kill a Hebrew son. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. I want you to think of this. You're pregnant, and you're praying it's a girl. You're praying it's a girl. not because you're tired of the rumbunctious boys and you're tired of the wrestling and you're tired of, you know, the dirty toilets all the time, but you're praying it's a girl, because if it's a boy, he's going to be thrown in the Nile. Hundreds of thousands of babies born and thrown in the Nile. This is dark. Interesting, in the, kind of in the, in the most recent, uh, kind of that Batman versus Superman movie, Lex Luthor, in kind of giving his justifications to why he's evil and why he's trying to kill Superman and rid the world of this God, he says he learned this lesson early in life after suffering abuse under the hands of his father. And no one stepped in, no one saved him, and he had this abusive environment, and he says this, If God is all-powerful, then he cannot be all-good. And if he's all-good, he cannot be all-powerful. Now, this is just a regurgitation of a centuries-old saying from the Greek philosopher Epicurus over the existence of evil. Its logic is clear. If God is all-good, then evil would not exist. And if God is all-powerful, then he would do something to stop all-evil. Therefore, God is either not good or powerful. Not all good or all powerful. Now, this is a pretty accurate depiction of how we usually feel when experiencing the effects of evil in our life or when we're suffering or when we are oppressed. But this is also why the book of Exodus has been so meaningful to people suffering under unjust oppression for hundreds of years. And we may be going through horrific and evil oppression, but Exodus shows us that God, though he may be silent, he is silently at work for our ultimate good, even in the dark. See, the logic of Lex Luther is faulty logic. First, it's incredibly arrogant and assumes that we should be able to see and understand everything while we were in it. How do you know this pain isn't actually good for you? I know it doesn't feel good. I know it doesn't look good. I know we don't understand it, but how do you know it isn't good for you? See, every six months or so, I take my children to the dentist. And what I'm literally willing, I'm willingly, purposefully inflicting upon them pain. And they look at me like, why do you hate me? This man is ripping my mouth open. He's grinding my teeth down looking at me just confused or when you give your child a shot or something, you see that little baby start looking at you lip quivering, right? You are the worst. (laughs) If you loved me, how could you cause me such pain? That's what our children think. What do we answer? Because I love you. Logic explosion, right? Right? If you love me, you wouldn't do this. Why are you doing this? Because I love you. There is a wisdom gap between me and my kids. I know circumstances that they don't know and they can't understand and they won't maybe until later. Now, multiply that wisdom gap by infinity and you have the wisdom gap between us and God. That's the difference between my understanding and my perspective and God's understanding and God's perspective. Secondly, it assumes that God cannot come, that good cannot come out of evil. Evil circumstances. Joseph tells us that's faulty logic. What they meant for evil, God used for my good and the salvation of many. God has the power and wisdom to cause the evil that Satan means to destroy us, to backfire and bring about his own goodwill. And thirdly, it does not take the fall into consideration. God is not the instigator of evil. We are. But thankfully, God has also put an expiration date on evil and an expiration date on suffering. Now we're getting to the last 10 verses and I'm getting close to closing. Chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So she's breaking the law. This is civil disobedience. This is... The law says, hand him over. The law says, throw him in the Nile, but I'm going to keep him. But when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. That's papyrus reeds. And daubed it with bitumen. It's like uh, tar and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his, oh, this, this one broke my heart this week. And his sister stood at a distance to know what will be done to him. See, I've got three girls and my firstborn girl is super protective over my third, fourthborn girl, third girl, but fourthborn. And there's even times that I'm, 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 I'm going to discipline. I'm saying no and I'm going and Zoe's went, no dad. And I'm seeing this mom put this baby boy in this basket and push him out into the Nile and I'm seeing little sister. What's going to happen to him? Where's my baby brother going? And they're thinking, what is God doing? What is God doing? How could this be happening We're his chosen people? And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Oh, the invisible hand of a sovereign God. In in my mind, my little Zoe is peeking through the weeds. She sees Pharaoh's daughter grab this baby. Boom, a brilliant idea comes into her mind. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Um, I see that you like this baby. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Hmm. And Pharaoh's daughter says to her, Yeah, it's a great idea. Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. I will pay you to be his mama for four, three or four years, is what most scholars say. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. See, in the scene, a deliverer is born, and then a deliverer is delivered or taken out of the water. God, this is so fascinating. And you can only see, this is the perspective we get. This is the peek behind the curtain. You don't get it when you're going through it, but you can get it by looking at Exodus. God used the wicked law of Pharaoh to get Moses right where he needed to be. See, Moses growing up in slavery, impoverished, how was he ever gonna grow up in the ranks and lead God's people out into into freedom? How is that ever going to happen if every day he's working, working, working violently? He's not educated, right? So what does God do? God allows Pharaoh's wicked plan to come to, pla- come to pass. So she, Moses' mom, puts him into the river, sends him off into the river. Pharaoh's daughter grabs him. Mama gets him for three or four years, goes back to Pharaoh, and now he's in the seats of power. Now he's right where he needs to be. Now he's going to get the greatest education in the land. Now he's going to learn all the ins and outs of Pharaoh's house. He's going to learn all about Egypt from inside. Think of this. God has an undercover agent inside Egypt. And it's a ticking time bomb. He's going to grow up. It's funny, too, because he's going to grow up, but he's going to be real proud and arrogant try to take things on in his own hands and mess things up. And then he's going to go out to the desert. Every man of God needs to go out in the desert and learn humility. And then once he learns humility, I'm coming back, and Pharaoh's house is going to fall. By the very man he raised. Oh. God has Pharaoh train his own worst enemy. And we're going to see this. This is kind of the pattern of redemption, a pattern. When my mom, my mom when I was a kid, she used to make clothes. Um, usually if you see an old picture of me and it's got a lot of ruffles, she made that. <laughs> or knickers, those were great. <clears throat> and she would always have a pattern. And she would have this pattern and she'd lay it on the cloth and then she'd cut it out, right? Based upon this pattern. And we see this God begin to lay this pattern of redemption down. And we see a sovereign God, totally sovereign, can do whatever he wants, always, whenever. But we see this bitterly enslaved people. And then we see these unlikely deliverers from Shipra and Pua to this rescued baby, Moses. And God always likes to use things that we don't expect him to use, deliver us in unexpected ways. And it's interesting to me because if you go to the New Testament, In Luke chapter 9, we're told when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, remember this, we talked about it in Mark as well, and his disciples saw him transfigured in his glory, two people appeared with him, Elijah and Moses, and we're told in Luke 9.31, they spoke of his departure, Jesus' departure, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. And of course, that word departure there in the Greek means exodus is exodus, not means exodus, the word is exodus. He says, when Moses and Elijah showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus told them about his exodus. Moses is like, well, you know, I got an ex, I did that too. See, so what's going on there, Luke wants us to know Jesus is the ultimate Moses. He is the true and better liberator who not only saves his people from their physical, physical slavery, but delivers them from their spiritual slavery to sin. Now listen to this. Freedom, we think in our fallen mind, is the ability to do whatever we want. True freedom is the ability to obey God and love God and enjoy God. If you are not, this is what we're gonna learn through Exodus. If you are not serving God, You're serving something, and whatever it is, is enslaving you. If the most powerful thing in your life is your job, if you get your meaning from your job, if your job is where you feel like more of a man or more of a woman, you are enslaved to your job. How do I know this? What happens when someone critiques your work? How do you respond? Right? And... and, how else are you a slave you're you're also a slave to your job if it's always more always more always more I, I sold 500 widgets this month i have to sell 501 next month it's never enough it's never enough it's never enough and what happens if you fail at your job you're despondent you feel crushed your life's joy is sapped from you. You get angry at home and you come home frustrated and you snap at the kids. Why? Because you're serving a false god and you're enslaved to it. If, you're ensla- if beauty is your top thing, oh, the crushing weight of age. What the- I need a magical cream to rub on my face. Or I need to have somebody pin me back. Age takes and saps our beauty and saps our strength and we're enslaved to it. But Exodus shows us the only thing we can be enslaved to that brings freedom is Jesus Christ. the One who says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you fail me, look to the cross, I've already died for you. He's the only one. And that's what Moses is meant to point to. See, Moses is the prototype savior. He's the... He's a sign that points forward. Moses is the pattern and Jesus is the reality. This is why when Jesus is crucified and resurrected and shows up to some of his disciples, he takes them through the Old Testament in Luke 24:27 and he says this, beginning with Moses and the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses, Moses was the prototype savior. The book of Exodus is the prototype salvation story. But what this means for us is is that we're going to read and interpret the book of Exodus correctly. Like Jesus taught his disciples, we have to read it Christocentrically. That means Jesus is the point of the book of Exodus. And how do we read it with ourselves in it here? God is sovereign. We have rebelled from him, and in our rebellion, some of us, we have racist tendencies in our heart like the Egyptians. I imagine the people of Egypt, they were going, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's passing this law. They were like, many, not all, but many of the Germans of Hitler's day, the Jewish problem, get rid of them. There is something wrong with them. We can... Can we search our hearts and see maybe just maybe you're you're an accidental racist? Or maybe we're in slavery like the Israelites are in slavery and we just can't stop. We're the taskmaster of our own false God is so oppressive and we're just constantly having to produce more and more and be better and better and better and we just want to rest and we just want to relax but we know if we stop, you're going to fail and if you fail, they're all going to find out about you. God is sovereign. We have rebelled from him. All rebellion from God leads in, just, it leads to slavery. You're in here, and, you, and nobody knows it, but you're enslaved to pornography. You can't stop. You try, but you can't. You're enslaved to alcohol. You can't stop. Exodus shows us, you're right, you can't, but there's one who came who can stop it. There's one who came who can redeem you. There's one who came who can give you freedom, And his name is Jesus Christ. The deliverer isn't Moses for us. The deliverer is Jesus. And he did it with his own life. He absorbed all your sin on the cross. He lived a perfect life that we all failed to live. And he died a substitutionary death. And just like Abram in Genesis 15, when we put our faith in him, we're counted righteous in Christ. And Paul tells us in in the book of Romans, we're no longer slaves to sin. You've been set free by Jesus Christ. You, No matter where you're at in this room, you have not sinned too far to be set free. You have not sinned too far to be set free. And no matter who you are in this room, you can't earn your way to heaven. You're not good enough to get God's clap. You are a sinner in need of salvation and Christ is your only hope. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for just your word to us, 3,000-year-old book, and it speaks like yesterday's news, but true, obviously, but more revelatory. It teaches us who you are and what you're doing and how you're at work and how we can't understand it, but you're silently moving the pieces around to accomplish salvation and the renewal of all things, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, do that. And I pray now as the sovereign God and as your spirit is in this room that you would give faith to those and they would believe in you and they would turn from their sin and they'd be set free to worship you. I pray that you do this by your sovereign hand this morning. And Father, as we come as believers who've already put their faith in you and we come down and we partake The bread and the wine that we would see our Redeemer, the greater Moses, who wasn't just delivered out of the Nile, but was delivered out of death, who went into the tomb dead, but came out alive. And Father, may we kind of, as we are crucified with you, So now we live with you, we're exalted with you, we're raised with you in new life. I pray that we would take the bread in our hands and eat your body and be reminded of that, experience that. And as we take the cup, we would drink of you, your blood that covers all of our sins, and we would worship. We would worship. You are our great redeemer, and you redeemed us through your body and through your blood, to your glory forevermore, we pray. Amen.